by the media reports. I'm aware that Congresswoman Waters was talking specifically about this trial and about the unacceptability of uh, anything less than a murder conviction and talk about being confrontational, but you can submit the press articles about that. This goes back to what I've been saying from the beginning. I wish elected officials would stop talking about this case, especially in a manner that is disrespectful to the rule of law and to the judicial branch in our function. I think if they want to give their opinions, they should do so in a respectful and in a manner that is consistent with their oath to the Constitution to respect a co-equal branch of government. Their failure to do so, I think, is abhorrent, but I don't think it has prejudiced us with additional uh, material that would prejudice this jury. They have been told not to watch the news. I trust they are following those instructions and that there is not in any way uh, a prejudice to the defendant beyond the articles that we're talking specifically about the facts of this case. A congresswoman's opinion really doesn't matter a whole lot. Members of the jury, I will now read the verdict as they will appear in the permanent records of the 4th Judicial District. State of Minnesota, County of Hennepin, District Court, 4th Judicial District, State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, Defendant. Verdict, Count 1, Court File Number 27, CR 20-12646. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to Count 1, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.44 p.m. Signed, juror four-person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count two. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.45 p.m. Signed by jury four-person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count three. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.45 p.m. So, as you heard from that intro, uh, we did get a conviction uh, on three counts of, well, they say murder. We'll go into some um, some detail on what the actual conviction was, but uh, we did get three counts of murder against Officer Derek Chauvin in the killing of George Floyd. There's a lot around this case going on right now. Um, before we get too deep into the weeds... Welcome back to the podcast. What was once the Point B podcast is now Friday Detox. Uh, if you did not hear episode 36, we explain really the reasons f- behind the, the switch up in the name of the podcast and, and the, the overall mission and goal of the podcast. So I highly encourage you to check out episode 36. For this episode, um, I'm getting back into the news, but I, I want to be extremely focused on just facts. Um trying my best people to just talk about the facts but in a, in a case or in a situation like this Derek Chauvin case there is so much behind every little detail um, so I'm going to pick through a few stories that have have to do with the trial itself um, before before we move on to some other news items uh, as you heard from the opening audio the the judge in the trial was extremely concerned about 
Um, well, he didn't bring up Joe Biden's, uh, President Biden's comments, but he did bring up Representative Maxine Waters' comments, which I'll play for here for you here in a second about um, what she thinks uh, should happen should the the trial not turn out favorably in, I guess, her opinion or in the opinion of uh, mainstream news and Black Lives Matter. So what was it that she was um, so upset about? Well, first, let's listen. Let's listen to what she said and then, then we'll commentate. Well, we, we got to stay on the street uh, and we've got to get more active. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they, they know that we need business. So, first of all, um, if the trial doesn't turn out the way she thinks it should or civil rights leaders think it should, um, then they need to get more confrontational. They need to stay in the streets. And, and this is where it gets extremely tricky for me because really people, depending on what side of the argument you're on when it comes to race relations, it we're almost we're, we're approaching these things not from different opinions or um or what have you but we're it's 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 like two different sets of fact and and so here's where i want to be really careful justice if if you if you look at the the fundament or the traditional view of justice lady justice blind has a sword in one hand has the scales in the other and then she's standing on the snake, which would be evil or injustice. Um, and, and the scales are important because she's weighing the facts, okay? And then she's blind. She's blindfolded. And that's important because what we're seeing right now coming out of everywhere, I'm going to play some audio for you in a second from The View um, and Whoopi Goldberg and what she thinks. And... The, the thing that gets me is these people talk about what should or should not happen in a trial when, as the judge, sh- judge said, it is not their place to do that. Now, we can have opinions and things like that, but when you're an elected official, you're in, a, in a, an elected position, your words carry weight. We, we heard over and over, words matter when Donald Trump was in office, and I'm not going to go out on a limb here and say that Maxine Waters wanted violence. But you have to you have to take into consideration this the situation that she put herself in. She left where she was previously, which I think was DC, shows up and gets in front of this crowd and is talking about getting more confrontational about if if what we want doesn't happen, we need to get more confrontational and stay in the streets. That's not how the justice system works. That is mob rule. And and that I think it's important, not because I want to crap all over Maxine Waters. I honestly, like the judge said, elected officials' opinions when it comes to um, a trial by jury don't, doesn't matter. So I don't give a crap about Maxine Waters. But what I do care about is that our country has a fundamental misunderstanding of what justice means. And, and we're gravitating, we're, we're hurling towards mob rule. And that's important in this case because we're going to play the audio of Joe Biden. Um, the, the, the words matter. And 
you can talk about the the jury being sequestered, being cut off from the media, and and told by the judge not to have their phones on or, or to look at social media or the news. That's all great. But you also had a, a a witness come and give testimony in favor of Officer Chauvin, saying that he performed what he, his job to the level that he was trained to do. He did what he was trained to do. And they come to find out there's a, a, a severed pig's head and pig blood thrown all over, I think, his front porch or something like that. Um, it, it's completely undeniable that there was outside influence on the witness testimony and on the opinions coming from the jurors. You, you can't really argue that fact because there is so much intimidation. I mean, they're wanting to keep up with their families. They're probably pulling out their phones and seeing alerts. I don't know. I, I hope that they, they did take that seriously and didn't look at the news. But, I mean, who would step into a juror's room for this case and not already have an opinion? We've all we, we've seen the reporting. We've seen the video. I think for the most part, people knew what their opinion was. And then, in my opinion... The only thing that could have happened from being in that jury room, from being in the courtroom and, and, and hearing and seeing the evidence that was put forward by the, the, the defense, there's reasonable doubt. But something else to keep in mind before we move on to the next piece of audio. Um, in Minnesota, from my understanding, to get a conviction of murder, you do not have to establish um, intent to kill. What you do have to establish is that his actions directly contributed and led to the death that to me is extremely um subjective it's a, it, it's still up in the air for me but ultimately what maxine waters words the effect that they had on this case is that now as the judge said the defense has a pretty substantial grounds for a mistrial saying that well there is outside influence um this jury was no longer impartial. There's the, 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 the case itself should have been, the, the trial should have occurred somewhere other than Minneapolis where they were surrounded by protesters every single day. Uh, there's so much intimidation going on that the, the jury could not have been impartial. I think they have a good case to, to, to make there and that they're, they're going to shoot for an appeal for a mistrial. And we may go through this whole process all over again because Maxine Waters couldn't keep her mouth shut. And then moving on from Maxine Waters, um, The View, one of the hosts from The View, I don't know any other names except Whoopi Goldberg, and I only know Whoopi Goldberg because of Sister Act. I mean, that, that, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't even know if anybody watches their show anymore. But their response was, to me was completely shocking because I expected them to defend Maxine Waters. I didn't, take, I didn't expect them to take the viewpoint that they took and flip it in the, in the way that they did. Listen. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, someone had asked Maxine, as a black man, I feel like nothing changes. George Floyd is waking people up, yet nothing happened despite the rhetoric. What difference needs to happen? If nothing happens, then we know we've got not only to stay in the street, we've got to fight for justice. But I'm very hopeful we'll get a guilty, guilty, guilty. After four years of real uh, race baiting, I, 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 I have to say I'm a little bit surprised <laughs> that some Republicans would think that people wouldn't recognize the difference. But, Joy, uh, does it surprise yeah. you that some Republicans are calling to expel Maxine Waters from Congress for that statement? 
No, no. They're trying to get off the hook for continuing the lie that Trump won the election, thus causing all sorts of problems. I don't think that Maxine meant anything by that except to say you have to stick with it, you know, you have to be there. But, you know, Democrats have to be twice as smart and twice as thoughtful as Republicans, because Republicans will say whatever they want and they get away with it. Whereas Democrats, one little thing like this, and they jump all over her. So holy crap. I mean, a few points there. One, is this still Trump's fault? Like, is that really the case that she's trying to make that this is still Trump because of the things that Trump said four years ago, words matter, that now we're, we're reaping what happened. I mean, I think I'm going to mention it here a little bit later, but Black Lives Matter came out and said, listen, our streets are filled with more police, more National Guard, more equipment, more weapons that belong to the police under Joe Biden than they were under Trump. If you don't remember, Donald Trump wanted to put send in the National Guard to quell these riots, to allow the peaceful protests to happen, set a curfew, and after that, if you're ca caught out in the streets, air quotes, protesting, slash throwing Molotov cocktails, you're going to get arrested. And these Democrat governors told Trump to shove it and to keep his National Guard. But then as soon as one state did allow him to send the National Guard in, all of a sudden the violence is quelled. But then you see here immediately, you've got a heavy, heavy National Guard presence in these cities, specifically Minneapolis, and everybody's just supposed to pretend that that's not what Donald Trump would have done. Is there any difference between how Joe Biden is responding to the violence compared to how Donald Trump responded? Um, the, re the response itself is pretty close. I mean, not a whole lot of difference. The response from the governors and from the media and how they treat the actions of Donald Trump versus Joe Biden are uh, polar opposite. So it's still Donald Trump's fault. Um this leads me to a point that something I, I've said before, I think, on the podcast, but I think it warrants repeating. Speaking to Democrats, is racism in America systemic or is this violence that we're seeing the result of four years of Donald Trump? Because you can't have it both ways. You can't say that all of these issues of racism and race baiting, uh, that, as Whoopi Goldberg liked to point out, that Donald Trump did all this race baiting. So is it is it the race baiting of 2016 to 2020, or is it system systemic racism? You can't have it both ways. And then uh, Joy, whoever, really seriously tried to, to pull the oh we, we're we're held to a higher standard of I guess truth than Republicans or conservatives are acting like Democrats are victims of cancel culture. I mean. Are Democrats and liberals the ones getting banned on social media, fired from acting jobs, taken off uh, radio airwaves, record label contract deals revoked literally overnight? Does anybody actually think that Joy Bayhart or whatever and Whoopi Goldberg are held to a higher standard than, I don't know, Ben Shapiro or a Candace Owens? or any other conservative commentator that wants to speak their truth when it, when it comes, or their opinion when it comes to these issues, I only see conservatives having to tiptoe and, and walk on eggshells when it comes to putting their opinions out on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram 
or TikTok or whatever. I, I just don't understand how she could try and make that point. But anyways, um, I guess that just proves how irrelevant she is. Moving on, Joe Biden did comment on the trial itself. I didn't like his comments, but I think he he did a good job of making sure that he put the words out there that he knew that the the jury was sequestered and that anything he said couldn't actually influence the trial itself. Uh, but I think his words, just so you so you've heard them. Um, I'll, I'll play them so that so that nobody could say, well, actually, actually, he said this when really he said this. So so listen to what he said, and then we'll move on. I've come to know George's family, uh, not just uh, I'm in passing. I've spent time with him. I uh, spent time with his little daughter, Gianna. You should see this beautiful child. Uh, and uh, his brother, both brothers, as a matter of fact. Uh, and uh, so... Uh, um, I, I can only imagine the pressure and anxiety they're feeling. Uh, and so uh, I waited till the jury was sequestered and, uh, and I called. And as uh, I wasn't going to say anything about it, but uh, Lonius said today on television, and he accurately said it was a private conversation because uh, uh, Joe understands what it's like to go through laws. And um, they're a good family. And they're calling for peace and tranquility, no matter what that verdict is. I'm praying the verdict is the right verdict, which is, I think it's overwhelming in my view. I wouldn't say that unless the, the jury was sequestered now, not hear me say that. But so we, we just talked to them. I want to know how they were doing, just personally. And we talked about personal things. So obviously there towards the end is an issue that many people on the right have with, with his words, saying that, the evidence was overwhelming um, and that he was praying that they came up with the, quote, right verdict. Um, so I don't think anybody is confused about what Joe Biden's opinion is regarding the, quote, right verdict. Um, I don't think that anybody is questioning what he is saying is overwhelming evidence in what direction. Obviously, Joe Biden thinks that Derek Chauvin should go to prison, should have been guilty on every single count which he was, by the way. Um, to, to, I, I have trouble in situations like this because I, I want to understand both sides. I want to say, yes, okay, he shouldn't have said it, but the jurors themselves were instructed to not pay attention to the news. At the time, they were sequestered. So did he really do anything wrong? Did he really do anything of consequence? it's tough to say without actually being in the jury room. So I think in this situation, if you're paying attention to any sort of news media or commentator who is giving a definitive uh, statement either way is, is doing a disservice because nobody was in that jury room. There's no cameras. Nobody knows if anybody heard Maxine Waters' words or, or heard Joe Biden's words. You have to go by what the judge said, which was that they were sequestered and they were told to, to stay off of the news, to stay off of social media. So in the end, um, I think it's a classic case of Joe Biden saying something he shouldn't have said, but it it's pretty irrelevant at this point. Um, but you, you do <laughs> you have the opportunity to play the well, if Trump did this scenario, um, which I always say I hate doing. But 
I feel like I have to many times because it, it is such a stark difference. If Donald Trump had come out and said, I think that the jury is going to make the, the right decision, they'll come up with the right verdict, and I think the evidence is overwhelming, you would know that Donald Trump's opinion is more gonna is going to lean more towards the right, and they would jump all over that and say, well, he's influencing the, the verdict. So I, as far as what Joe Biden said, I think the, the only thing you can take out of that is that the media treats him with kid gloves and treated Donald Trump as if he was Hitler's spawn. Um, I want to play some audio from Al Sharpton. I initially started watching the this video that I'm going to pull audio from um, because I wanted to, to show where he says that the fight's not over or whatever, and you, you'll hear it in a second, but I had a hard time with it because... He's praying the way a pastor prays. He's praying and thanking God, not for the violence, not for the protesting, but for the verdict. And this is one of those, another one of those scenarios where I think people really are united. I don't think anybody is defending Derek Chauvin as being just an amazing guy. Um, but that's not, that's not what the media is accusing the right of the media is accusing the right of saying there is no problem with police brutality. There is no systemic racism and that we should just go on our merry way after Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd. And that's, that's not the case. I think most people are united around the fact that George Floyd shouldn't have died in that situation, but we have to think, who was involved in that situation? Who made the decisions that ultimately led to George Floyd dying? And in the end, George Floyd was in that situation because of his own actions. He was there because he tried to pass a, 20, a fake $20 bill as real, which would have negatively impacted that cashier. So George Floyd didn't care about that guy. Um, George Floyd was high on a, a number of drugs. If you haven't seen it, it's available. Just Google it. The toxicology report um, for George Floyd he had fentanyl. He had, well, he had weed. Um, he had some methamphetamines. He had a whole cocktail of stuff in his system. Um, he had heart issue, I believe. I think he had a lung issue. Whether he died because of all those issues or he died because of Derek Chauvin, the fact of the matter is Derek Chauvin, I believe, this is just my opinion, put himself in a situation where it was pretty easy to blame him for George Floyd dying because Derek Chauvin's knee was on the back. Everybody's saying the neck, but as something that came out in the trial, it was not on the neck of George Floyd. His knee was on the shoulder. It was not cutting off the carotid artery, which would have been way worse. Um, but the fact is a man died while underneath the knee of a police officer. So I think most people can agree that Derek Chauvin should have been held accountable. Um, that's a word, word of the day, 365 days of the year for LeBron James. But yeah, he should have been held accountable. Um, and, I, and I have no issue with him going to jail over this. What I do have a problem with is the people who are acting like this is an example of the entire system, that the entire system needs to be brought down because of one police officer's actions. And, and that's where I think... Um, the disconnect is that's where there is no unity because people are on opposite sides of that issue because well one side believes the system is 
not perfect, but the best that we have right now, and it can be re- reformed and it can be repaired. The other side wants, just wants to burn it all down. So anyways, coming back to Al Sharpton, I, well, I'm going to play the audio and just keep in mind, I don't necessarily disagree with a lot he's saying. The point where we disagree with is where he starts bringing up the protests and saying that this guilty verdict that they got, which they've never gotten before, is the result of all of these protests. And I, I feel like they, they love bringing up the peaceful protests, but they purposely leave out the violence that happened over the summer and the violence that's happening, well, that happened leading up to the verdict. Um, and that's, that's an important piece to the argument because the jury was well aware of the violence that happened over the summer and the violence that was happening right outside the door of where they were um, sequestered. So listen to Al Sharpton. We don't find pleasure in this. We don't celebrate a man going to jail. We would have rather George be alive. Amen. But we celebrate that we, because young people, white and black, some castigated, many that are here tonight, marched and kept marching and kept going. Many of them looked down on, but they kept marching and wouldn't let this die. And this is an assurance to them that if we don't give up, that we can win some rounds. But the war and the fight is not over. Just two days from now, we're going to have to deal with the funeral of Dante Wright in this same county, the same area. We still have cases to fight, but this gives us the energy to fight on. And we are determined that we're going to fight until we make federal law yes. the George Floyd yes. Justice in Policing Act yes. must be law. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for giving us the strength to stand together. Sometimes we would question each other. Sometimes we say this is just going to be a waste of time. But somehow you touch us in the midnight hours and teach us to hold on. So, um, I don't necessarily disagree, like I said, with, with much of what he said there. I, I honestly appreciate it where he said they don't take joy in the fact that Derek Chauvin is going to prison, but that they wish George Floyd was still alive. And, and I think, again, that that is a sentiment that many, most, the vast majority of Americans share. That you know, nobody's happy that George Floyd is dead. Nobody's happy that Derek Chauvin's in prison. Well, I'm, I don't know about that necessarily. Um, I saw a lot of celebrations right after the conviction, but I'd like to believe that the celebration is because they got this verdict, that it was a step in the direction of holding police officers accountable for uh, any sort of death or injury that happens under their watch or their knee. Um, So I don't necessarily feel that it's all bad, but again, where where I, I disconnect with that side of the argument is this George Floyd, um, the, the, the policing act that he mentioned there at the end, um, we're, we're hearing rumors and we're hearing ideas and thoughts coming out of a lot of these Democrat cities, uh, California, of course, Michigan, where they're talking about what, what they need to do to keep this type of violence from happening again. And all of it overwhelmingly is tying police officers' hands behind their back. 
not literally, but in every single way besides literally. Um, we've seen these ideas and these issues brought forward before, and they've been defeated primarily because of police officers and police unions coming out and saying this is wrong. Where, uh, like uh, Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago saying that basically they, they want a police officer to re request and receive approval to pursue a suspect before they do that. So if I see a guy who's committed a crime running away from me, the police officer's job is to go and capture that person and apprehend them and, and give justice an opportunity. Whether a crime was already committed or they're running towards a crime, that's the officer's job. Because if not the officer, it's going to be some citizen. Some random person will be the one who gets in the way of this potential criminal. Um, that, that doesn't give the cop an excuse to pull his gun out and shoot the guy in the back. It's cause, you know, that's not what we're arguing here. But that that is what the media, that's the choice structure that we're given. Either the cop does, um, the cop shoots and kills, or the cop does nothing. And that's that's literally, it's not, that that's not the, the choices that we have. Uh, there, there's the the happy medium. There's the cop does his best to preserve life, but every life matters. And we saw that we're going to bring up the issue with, um, the 16 year old girl that was shot and killed. Everybody is saying how much her life mattered, but what about the life of her would be victim? What about the life of the person that she was about to stab? Does that person's life not matter? Um, and, and that's, that's where I, I, I fall off the horse there. Um, I, I was going to play some audio, but we're running out of time. Uh, I got some other stuff I got to get to, but I, I was listening in. I was trying to watch some of the live feeds after the verdict came out and overwhelmingly what we saw, just like Reverend, uh, Sharpton said, this is not over. And some people mean that legally, which I feel like Al Sharpton does. You know, I don't, I think he's an idiot. I think that he has gotten pretty wealthy, you know, flying around in private jets, wearing nice suits off of race baiting. And I may be completely wrong here, but I sensed um, genuine relief. I sensed genuine joy about the conviction coming out of him. He shed some tears. They didn't seem fake. I don't think he's intelligent enough to fake a tear. Um, so I, I, I felt like it was a good moment. <laughs> um, but then the... The sad part is that they, they don't want to just take joy and take pride in the verdict that they achieved in the Derek Chauvin case. It's, it's not over. And that's the message that I'm hearing everywhere is this fight is not over. Now we've got Dante Wright. Now there's this 16-year-old that was shot. Um, Breonna Taylor. There's these names that are still going to be invoked to justify more violence. Hopefully not. Hopefully I'm wrong. And I feel like I, I, that's the, the overwhelming feeling I have in all of these situations that, you know, I hope I'm wrong. I hope that none of this comes to happen. But ultimately, my prediction is we're going to see more trials. Even in the Derek Chauvin case, there might be a mistrial or an appeal. And there's going to be more, more protests and there's going to be more violence. And there is not enough language coming from the left, coming from the Democrats saying no to the violence. They just act as if it doesn't exist and they refer to it as peaceful protest. 
And I think not, not separating the Antifa mentality from the genuine Black Lives Matter mentality is a disservice to the movement. Because if you, if you didn't divide Malcolm X from MLK Jr., the, the movement would have failed. Because that was the overwhelming feeling from what I've gathered of MLK towards the Malcolm X side, the, the more violent side, is you're giving them fuel to defeat our movement. Peace is the only way. The, the Gandhi way is the only way to achieve these types of victories. And escalating violence or escalating confrontation, getting more confrontational, all that does is give more justification for a greater police presence, pull out the National Guard, and subdue. And, and so, you know, I want to see the genuine Black Lives Matter movement out in the streets protesting, holding up signs, uh, discussing things, you know, under Trump, um, man, I can't remember which issue it was, but I remember seeing video of black lives matter on one side of a street and then seeing, uh, like proud boys type guys, you know, people with Trump flags and American flags on the other side. And there was a moment where they came together and met in the middle of the street and they talked and they shook hands and they discussed. That's what I'd like to see, but that's not what we're seeing. And to pretend like what we have been witnessing since summer 2020, to pretend that it, it is some sane, rational discussion that that is has an objective, a reasonable objective, it's a disservice. You know, if you're going out in the streets and you're rioting and you're protesting, but you're not, you don't have a specific objective. It's just we need to be heard. Um, I think you you run a risk of taking it too far. Because you can't control the movement at that point if there's no stated objective. And as, as I brought up um, the other day, the Black Lives Matter objective is all over the place. Uh, it's not just Black Lives Matter. It's uh, tearing apart the nuclear family, the traditional mother-father structure of a family household. It's moving things toward, in a Marxist direction. They've, they've said themselves, the leadership of Black Lives Matter, we are trained Marxists. And they're acting like Marxists. They're saying they're ordering their troops out of the streets while they're buying up millions of dollars worth of real estate. Where's the money coming from? I'm not sure. But, you know, that, that's, that's where I feel like most people are at. The mainstream media is just not giving um, validity or giving a voice to the sane, rational argument towards police reform and towards race relations. So uh, we'll move on from that. Uh, keep an eye out for mistrial or appeal in the Derek Chauvin case, and then we'll see what happens from there. But uh, there are some other stories to get to, so that's what we'll do now. One thing I don't want to do is I don't just want to focus on things that are happening that are terrible in the country, um, but there are some issues that I think are going to dictate. Like, you know, the the Derek Chauvin case and now this this issue with the um, with the 16-year-old girl who was shot, it's not just the issue. It's not just the event that happened in the trial or, or the, the cop or whatever. It's not just that. It's, and th this is the beef I have with Democrats is they're using these situations to pass legislation instead of letting the trial happen. Instead of letting people just form their opinions and then move on, they, they fuel all of this. You, you've, you've heard the audio, the, the guy who was protesting in Minneapolis runs up to a CNN camera and basically blames CNN for the flames 
and the, the, the violence that's happening is, you know, you guys doing what you do, you're, you're making this worse by putting so much weight on it, by putting so much attention on it. You know, there's, there's things that we should focus on, but when you focus on it from a perspective of uh, police are bad, Republicans are bad, Democrats are good, and all the violence you're seeing right here is mostly peaceful, so just ignore the violence, pretend like it's all beautiful, and move on. But then when you've got thousands of conservatives gathered, they want to focus on the little bit of violence that happened, which was tragic, was disgusting, was one of the worst moments in American history, uh, recent American history anyways. They want to focus on that part of it, but not on the thousands of peaceful people. So, so they, they, it's, it's hypocrisy. It's the definition of hypocrisy. And so these issues that come about lead to other problems. And, and so that's why I think it's so important for us to, to listen to the facts. To If you, there's a shooting happen and you're seeing news reports about protests, watch the video. Video doesn't lie. But there's a reason why it's usually very difficult to find the unedited video. There's a reason why usually the unedited videos don't make their way to CNN. It's only the Fox News and then the smaller... And, and really... Uh, CBS. I've seen some decent reporting out of CBS and ABC, but of course the CNNs and MSNBCs are just <laughs> so far left. They don't even know what they're doing. Um, but there's a few things before we, we move to some encouraging news. Um, there's a New York Post article came out. Breonna Taylor's mom let Black Lives Matter, specifically BLM Louisville, have it. She called them fraud, in fact. And it's tough not to agree with her when you when you read what she wrote. I'm going to read it verbatim um, as best I can. Uh, she said, I've never personally dealt with BLM Louisville and personally have found them to be fraud. Attica Scott, another fraud. Uh, I could walk in a room full of people who claim to be here for Brianna's family who don't even know who I am. I've watched y'all raise money on behalf of Brianna's family who has never done a damn thing for us, nor have we needed it or asked. So talk about fraud. And again, a unifying fact that we can all get behind is that Black Lives Matter Incorporated is fraud. They pulled in millions of dollars and nobody knows where that money went. Um, when you follow the links, the Act Blue links to donate to Black Lives Matter, it was going to Joe Biden's nomination, uh, his, his election campaign. So when you see things like that, I think the American people are smart enough to, to recognize fraud where fraud exists. Um, and to, to a, a larger point, you, the, the media's hypocrisy and their just fear-mongering is so evident when only one part of the news media is reporting on something as huge as Breonna Taylor's mom, Tamika Palmer, calling Black Lives Matter a fraudulent organization. The fact that that doesn't end up on the mainstream news cycle is pretty remarkable. In the case of this 16-year-old girl who was shot while she was trying to stab another young black girl, it's so irrational. Um, it doesn't even make sense, the, the, the amount of outrage coming from the left towards this officer. And, and I've seen a lot of people now, I think even Don Lemon was saying that this was a justified shooting. So that's encouraging. But of course we saw LeBron James come out and tweet immediately 
you're next with a picture of that police officer who is a military veteran, a trained marksman who is now serving as a police officer. And LeBron James doxes this dude, puts a picture, a clear picture of his face on his Twitter account saying you're next and, and then pulls it like a freaking coward. But why is that so wrong? Well, because it had just happened and somebody with a massive following like LeBron James thinks it's okay to dox a police officer. Keep in mind, LeBron James has private security. LeBron James is well protected by, I'm sure, an innumerable amount of pistols and I'm sure it's in, in, to some level automatic weapons when he's at a, at a game or if he's traveling overseas. LeBron James is not worried about police officers killing him. But he gets to say that black people are getting hunted down in the streets by police officers. So before we move on from this, there's a a very important point I want to make. When it comes to the police being systemically racist, if they are, they are the worst racists in the history of racism. Because really think think critically about this. Don't all people see is the, the, the gun being raised and somebody being shot. The one shooting is white, the one being shot is black. They completely ignore the black life that was saved. They completely ignore all the eyewitnesses there that have said that this was a justified shooting, that if the cop hadn't shot her, there'd be a dead black girl. They ignore all that. But then the larger point what they ignore is that let's say this cop really was racist. He gets a call from a black person saying, hey, there's a a girl out here trying to knife people. She's got a a freaking kitchen knife, a butcher's knife, and she's trying to knife people. She is saying, I'm going to knife you. Would a racist cop drop what he's doing and rush to the scene and put himself in harm's way, whether physically, physical harm, or his career, or his family's safety? Because, as we've seen, all it takes is one dumbass like LeBron James to put a picture of this guy on social media. And now, how many people know exactly who this guy is and how long before somebody leaks where he lives, where his kids go to school, where his wife works, or where his wife does fucking yoga? I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a very serious thing that LeBron James did, and I hope he pays the price for it. I really, I really do. Like, if... if Anybody on the right did that towards somebody on the left to that scale, they'd be immediately banned on Twitter. Um, but again, so, so back to the point I'm trying to make. If his goal is to be a racist, if his goal is hopefully, you know, if, if, if he's a racist and he's thinking best case scenario, black person dies today, why would he rush and put himself in the middle of that situation? Because if you watch the video, this this cop shows up in the nick of time. It's not like he saw somebody with a knife and shot them from a distance. He showed up and there's girls basically wrestling. And when one of them is on the back swing about to push a knife into somebody's chest or somebody's stomach or the side or wherever she was aiming, that's when he pulls the trigger. That, that's the, the last second. He, that, that's when you have less than one second to make the right decision. And if you make the wrong decision, you're screwed. But as we've seen, even if he makes the right decision, he's screwed. I could get with these people 
Black Lives Matter and everything, if they were pissed, if if it took too long for the cop to get to the situation to respond, like if they found out by GPS or whatever, okay, he got the call at one o'clock and then at one twenty there's a receipt for a Snickers at the gas station. Then he stopped and got some donuts, and then finally at about 2.15 he shows up, and there's a body on the ground, and what do you know, he's already got a hearse with him and a priest. Like, that, to me, would be racism. You can see this as a mostly peaceful 16-year-old girl was killed as they're presenting this, which may be true. She may have been peaceful in every situation of her life leading up to that moment. It's hard to believe, but let's say she led a peaceful life, and then last second decided to pull a knife out and try to stab somebody. In the end, there is somebody trying to harm another individual, and that is literally the job of keeping the peace. Um, This cop's impeccable timing saved the life of a black girl at the very last second. So I got to move on from this because I just feel like it is so obvious, it is so apparent what the right decision was that we shouldn't even be discussing this. Um, Unfortunately, Idiots like LeBron James make this into an issue where now everybody has to pick a side and and it pretty much follows on the lines of who you voted for. And that's really the sad situation that this country's in and what really worries me because all they have to do is politicize anything, literally anything. Uh, We saw Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez come out right after the verdict and say, try try to make the claim that the Green New Deal, that climate change is a social and racial justice issue, that somehow climate change disproportionately affects negatively minorities. And so now you're a racist if you don't, if you, one, don't even believe in climate change, or at least man-made climate change. And you're a racist if you don't fall in line and support the Green New Deal. I've been calling it, I've been saying it, that that's exactly the, that's the route they were going to take. It was hit them with this, and as soon as, as this is pretty much over, the Derek Chauvin trial, let's move on to the next thing. And racism, social justice, and public health uh, crisis, or whatever you want to call it, those are the, the terms to watch out for. Because whether it's climate change, aka the infrastructure bill, police reform, election security, all these things, the Democrat position is, no, that's racist. And if, if, as an American, if, if you're dumb enough to fall for it, I'm sorry, but I, I just, I can't understand how you can't see through just blatant race baiting. If you want to see race baiting, trying to claim that the fact that I don't drive a freaking Prius is because I'm a racist or that the fact that I don't think that we should be in the, in the Paris Accords or the Paris Agreement, that now I'm a racist because somehow global warming only affects minorities to that extent. And so that me, this is this just just my my privilege over here, not believing in in climate change or man made climate change. So it's just ridiculous. And um, I guess that's all I got to say about that. Um, some encouraging news, in my opinion. Um, we saw the a Florida sheriff, um, along with Governor Ron DeSantis, coming out and saying, basically, if you're coming here from Florida or if you're coming to Florida, don't bring your stupid opinions with you. Um, and, and this was when they were signing a, a, a bill into law talking about uh, it's an anti-rioting law. It's to protect the right to protest, but it gives police the authority and the ability to not have to cut through red tape just to make an arrest when somebody is burning down a local business. 
Uh, so there's a little audio here. Take a listen. Into building their business. We saw folks' businesses burn around this nation who literally had worked their entire life and had every penny of their life savings involved. And what our governor said is, that's not happening here. And we're going to be proactive, and we're going to make sure people are safe. Well, it might come as a surprise to you, Governor. I got some... There you go. <laughs> I want to make sure everybody knows this is a peaceful protest. We encourage it. It's the foundation of our country. And we want people to peacefully protest when they feel the need. This is a riot. And this will get you locked up before quick in the state of Florida. Pay attention. We've got new law. And we're going to use it if you make us. So I, I see that and I already know that there's, there's so many people who see that and, and it's just, you know, more state violence, more, more, uh, police presence to infringe on the rights of, uh, minorities or whatever ridiculous position you take. Law and order is, is essential to a free nation. When you don't have law and order, when you don't have blind justice, you're not free. You're not a free nation. You're not a free people. And to pretend otherwise is idiotic. But there's a, there's a, a greater point that I want to make here. Leftists, leftists right now are acting like they resent a strong police force. Like this systematically or systemically racist government is suddenly systemically racist. Uh, the point I brought up earlier. You can't say that all this is because of Donald Trump, but then also blame it on systemic racism. That the whole system is built on racism. You, you got to pick one or the other. Um, but the larger point, let's not forget who wanted a, a strong civilian police force as strong as our military to begin with. You might recognize this voice. We cannot continue to rely only on our military in order to achieve the national security objectives that we've set. We've got to have a civilian national security force that's just as powerful, just as strong, just as well-funded. You're, you're seeing a stronger and more covert and well-funded police force because of the actions of many on the left. So you can't accept that as okay and then out of the other side of your mouth say, well, no, the system is racist and we need less cops. We need less officers on the street with guns. We need more of these community organizers, more of these um, basically therapists responding to these issues, to these uh, um, 911 calls trying to de-escalate de the situation. And again, I brought up earlier how uh, Black Lives Matter now, I think on Twitter, saying um, how there's more police presence and a heavier police presence now under Biden, uh, that Biden's law enforcement presence in and around these riots and protests is even stronger than Trump's. They tied Trump's hands and they blamed the violence on him while not allowing him to do use his power to affect positive change. Now Biden's in it. They want all, <laughs> they want that stuff out of here. I don't even know how they could be any, any 
any more transparent to their hypocrisy. At what point does criminalizing the police result in basically endorsing violence against them? You know, if you really believe, LeBron James, that black people are being just systematically hunted in the streets and shot down by police all the time, if you really believed that, why aren't you more pissed off? Why aren't you out there rioting with the rioters, protesting with the protesters? No, he's a coward. He hides behind his keyboard. And here's my greater concern. Before we move on, uh, I, I'm going to play some audio of Burgess Owens um, just completely obliterating Joe Biden and, and the left, the Democrats, claim that uh, these voting laws in Georgia are Jim Crow reincarnate. Um, so, so stick with me. That, that's super important. But one more point on this. There, there's going to be a point where the leftist progressive tyrants have sparked enough fear, fueled enough anger, resentment, and hatred for cops. It's, it's going to become a violent firestorm. When, when you declare war on an issue, when you say words like, you know, the war is still on, war has to end with a victor and a loser. Compromise, compassion, unity, all of that, it gets thrown out the window. Victory is the only solution. And the losers are cast out. And that's what they want. The far left. Now, I'm not saying your average Democrat or even your average liberal. I think though we're all united for the most part in what we believe. We're just taking orders, marching orders from, the, from different people. And that's the problem. But the people who are really trying to make this issue into a bigger issue so that they can get their progressive uh, laws and executive orders passed without a problem, those are the ones who want victory. They want more division because then when there's a war, there's a victor and a loser and they get to cast out the loser. So we can't give it to them. We can't engage in the war that they're wanting to engage in. We have to engage in the war of ideas, the war of facts, the war of sticking closer to the truth and, and ignoring the voices that are trying to spark outrage and anger and more emotion, that, that, that's the problem. What we need to do is focus on the facts, the things that can be measured, the things that can be proven or disproven. That's how you get real justice. And so that's why I'm going to play this audio from Burgess Owens, who's a representative out of Georgia, former Democrat, he's a football player, and I've heard, I think he's going to be running for uh, Congress uh, for a Georgia seat, which is super important. Uh, if you don't know, in Georgia, they passed a voting rights bill that the left, Biden, they're trying to call it Jim Crow. They're trying to say that it's Democrats or that Republicans don't, don't want anybody to have snacks or water while they're in line to vote. That voter ID is racist. That if you require a voter ID, it's because you don't want black people to vote. And, we, and we've talked about that a little bit. We'll talk about it a little bit more in a second. But listen to the calm and rational voice that is Burgess Owens and try to disagree with him. But as someone who's actually experienced Jim Crow laws, I'd like to set the record straight on the myth regarding the recently passed Georgia state law and why any comparison between this law and Jim Crow is absolutely outrageous. Here are a few examples of my own life of what Jim Crow laws actually look like. 
At the age of 12, my father allowed me to participate in a demonstration with college students in front of the segregated Florida State Theater, where because of our color, we could not enter. I was the youngest participant there. Only 50 years later did I learn that my father had parked across the street to watch and make sure I was safe. In the seventh grade, my school never received new books. Instead, we received books from the all-white school across town. At service stations, there were white men-only restrooms, white women-only restrooms, and a filthy restroom in the back of the station for black Americans designated as colored. In addition, Jim Crow laws like poll tax, property tests, literacy tests, and violence and intimidation at the polls made it nearly impossible for black Americans to vote. The section of the Georgia law that has brought so much outrage from the left is simply requires any person applying for absentee ballot to include evidence of a government-issued ID on their application. If a voter does not have a driver's license or ID card, that voter can use a current utility bill, bank statement, government check, paycheck, or any other government document that shows a name and address of this voter. If a voter somehow cannot produce one of these above forms of ID, that voter can still vote and cast a vote a provisional, provisional ballot. By the way, 97% of Georgia voters already have a government-issued ID. What I find extremely offensive is the narrative from the left that black people are not smart enough, not educated enough, not desirous enough for education to do what every other culture and race does in this country, get an ID. True racism is this. It's projection of the Democratic Party on my proud race. It's called the soft bigotry of low expectation. President Biden said in, of the Georgia law, this is Jim Crow on steroids. With all due respect, Mr. President, you know better. It is disgusting and offensive to compare the actual voter suppression and violence of that era that we grew up in with a state law that only asked that people show their ID. This is the type of fear mongering I expect in the 1960s, not today. Super important. If you've never heard the, the quote, the soft bigotry of low expectations, well, now you have. <laughs> You're welcome. But it, it is, it, it's so true because just think. Just try to set aside opinions you've already got about voter ID laws and just think. Is it impossible for people to go and get a, a driver's license or state-issued ID or to show a utility bill or to do any number of things just to prove who you are I don't think that's a high bar to set because so many other parts of our lives require the exact same thing. If you want to go and buy an alcohol, if you want to go into a bar, any of those things, you got to show an ID. If you want to attend an event and you bought tickets and you got to, you got to pick up your tickets at will call, you got to show an ID, prove who you are. I think the very least that we can require of something as, um, far-reaching as casting a vote for an elected official or to, to vote on a, a, a local proposition a change of law or whatever it is the very least you can do is prove that it's a valid vote by proving who you are if you can't do that why vote if we can't be sure if we can't be confident that when bob votes republican bob meant to vote republican that when bob votes republican and then another vote vote comes in for Bob for Democrat. Now we got an issue and we got to prove something. Speaking of election reform, um, Arizona is about to do a physical hand 
one vote at a time recount of Maricopa County, which is the county that was called for Biden very early and Fox News called Arizona for Biden, which ultimately set the tone for the rest of the election. We'll see what happens there. I'm not holding my breath. I honestly don't give a crap. I've moved on. But it's important to know. Um, I think Burgess Owens said it about as well as anybody can say it when it comes to um, the racism of trying to make the claim that because black people or Hispanics are black or Hispanic because of who they are, that they it's somehow unreasonable to expect them to do something that everybody else in the nation, every other race does in our country. I don't think I need to uh, expand upon that because I think he said it well. But another point I want to bring up here is where is the change coming? Where's the social movement coming from? Once again, it's coming out of colleges. And the point I want to make is we're seeing what he, what he brought up, you know, going to college and, and hearing about these differing ideas, hearing about critical thinking, hearing about ideas that are different from what you've heard before. That happening on a college on a college campus is not new. And in fact, we're seeing less and less of that. We're seeing less critical thinking on college campuses and more just shouting down ideas that people don't like. But the battle for the soul of the nation, I believe, is happening and will be decided on college campuses. And, and, and that for me is actually encouraging because there are so many college groups out there on both sides of the political spectrum, but I'm focused on the ones from the right, for the conservative right. And I'm seeing a lot of excitement and fervor and ultimately a refusal to quit, a refusal to give in, and a refusal to be silenced. And it used to be that that, that side of the argument was the Democrat Party. No more. The Democrat Party is the party of sit down and shut up. And it's amazing how, um, well, I mean, how the, how the pendulum swings. Uh, some quick, quick uh, stories to bring up here. Uh, California Supreme Court narrowly votes to allow in-home prayer meetings within the COVID lockdown protocols. I think it was a four to five vote or something like that. Um, one vote away, literally, from losing the right to, to hold prayer meetings in your house because of COVID. So this is what, like what I mentioned before, these issues in themselves, who cares, but it's the, the effects of them. It's, it's what's going to come from this down the road. And, and whether you think requiring or, or outlawing, um, in-home prayer meetings because of COVID, if you think that that's a, a rational step to take, I could kind of see it, you know, well, there's an, there's a pandemic going on. Why would you be meeting in mass in confined areas where then you're going to go out and spread the virus all around. So I guess I can understand some of the, the thinking behind it, but you can't just think about how it affects the immediate, um, the people involved immediately. It's how is this going to be used in the future? And that's something I think that again, we should all be keeping in mind if you're giving power to Donald Trump, you got to understand that the same power is going to be available to the next Democrat in office and vice versa. You're giving all this power to Joe Biden right now. You're, you're going to be extremely sorry you did when a Republican gets in office and gets to use all that power against you, which is the, the number one argument for more, more local government and less D.C. government, less centralized federal government, more localized government. Um, another story, uh, Canadians raised an upside down flag 
across the border and used lights to signal Morse code, um, an SOS signal across the U.S.-Ontario border um, in protest of the COVID lockdowns that are going on in Canada. Canada's completely locked down right now. Pastors are going to jail. People are being jailed. But you're also seeing videos of people in restaurants who are being visited by health officials saying, hey, you know, this place is not in compliance. Nobody's wearing masks. And they're shouting them down and kicking them out of the restaurants. There's a freedom movement happening in Canada. And unfortunately, much like what we're seeing in the U.S., local government doesn't want that to happen. And so the people who actually did the raise the upside down flag and signaled the SOS towards the U.S., they were charged and fined for doing that. Um, just another complete, <laughs> uh, disregard for freedom of speech. Um, quickly, quickly, uh, the story about black lives matter, we're about to go protest a cop killing or a, a, a c- killing of a man by police. Uh, then they find out that the man was white who was killed. And, uh, so they abandoned, <laughs> they abandoned the protest, which I thought was, Hilarious and sad at the same time. Um, A victory, but also a a warning sign. Planned Parenthood finally addressing the racism of its founder. If you don't know, Margaret Sanger was an avowed racist who used Planned Parenthood and justified Planned Parenthood and abortion and contraception, basically in order to rid the world of the scourge of minorities, to rid the world of the African-American community. They built... Planned Parenthood's predominantly in minority communities. Abortion vastly affects minority populations more than white populations. Uh, And conservatives have been saying for years, for years, that Planned Parenthood is based in racism. And I think that the left finally realized they can't win that argument. So here's what they're going to do. They're acknowledging Margaret Sanger was a racist. But then they're also saying that we can't discredit the the good that she's done for reproductive rights. Um, so watch for them. They've already taken Margaret Sanger's name off of some building um, for Planned Parenthood. Watch for them to to move to try to forget the name Margaret Sanger so that they can separate the racism from what they're doing. We can't let them do that. Ultimately, I think the the... The nail in the coffin for Planned Parenthood is just the argument of life. Um, Does best case scenario for anything Planned Parenthood does ever result in a net positive for life saved? No. It's predominantly convenience for one life resulting in the extinguishing of another life. And we can't forget that point. So... Moving on from news and politics, which I feel vastly uh, unqualified to commentate on, and let's move to something I feel even more vastly unqualified to commentate on, which is uh, faith. So you might think that I'm talking on Friday right now, but actually, um, long story short, I had some interruptions, had a bunch of stuff come at me on Friday. Wasn't able to finish the episode, so it's now Saturday morning. Hence, I've got my Black Rifle coffee. Ah, it's delicious. Um, but, so, I wanted to bring a message 
I'm trying to encourage y'all, trying to point you on the direction of faith, of hope, versus even politically speaking, but also just socially speaking. I feel like there's one side of the spectrum that is hopeless, that is trying to tell you that the system is rigged, that you stand, you don't stand a chance at all these successes and great things that our country's done, that our faith has done, um, that it doesn't matter. And you're born into a position in life, just by chance you either succeed or fail, and no amount of effort by yourself can change that. And I just flat out disagree. I, I, I don't believe that. I do believe in hope. Um, while some people see hope as the great um, lie, the great trick, they, they think of hope as it's just, you know, we're in a prison cell with um, an open ceiling that we can't reach. If you've ever seen uh, Batman, I don't know which one it was. Um, not Dark Knight. Maybe it was Dark Knight. Uh, I don't know. Anyways, um, the prison cell with the walls so high you can't scale them and you get to see the sun and that this is supposed to be just the hope and it's supposed to be crippling. Um, but we're not in prison. We are free, it, at least <laughs> to some extent. Um, maybe you could argue that uh, we're, we're less free than we should be or less free than we could be and increasingly less free. But um, the hope of freedom, the hope of wanting to do things and make a change in your life and ultimately decide where your life ends up, um, I think we do still have that freedom. Now, you can't control other situations that would result in you, you know, you can't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm going to be a millionaire by May. <laughs> it's, it doesn't work that way. Uh, but you can decide to pursue it. And uh, freedom is nobody's going to come in between you and your goals, or some might call it your pursuit of happiness. Uh, anyways, so I wasn't able to, to record this part yesterday. I had my notes ready, but couldn't do it. And then this morning, I'm, I'm heading into the office, and I stop by Whataburger and get a little breakfast, and uh, I'm listening to music, some praise music, and some stuff comes on that's just like, wow, that's, that's really good for me this morning, good to hear. And and then in, in prepping, waiting for my computer to catch up, basically, um, I'm scrolling through Instagram, and in a local church uh, that I follow on Instagram posted something that went hand in hand perfectly with exactly what I was planning on talking about anyways, but from a different perspective. And it was, it was amazing because I was not expecting that. Um, so, so the message I want to bring you is kind of twofold. Uh, as you notice the title of the podcast, break my heart. Um, when I was younger, um, I'll, I'll, I'll introduce it this way. When I was younger, I, re I remember whether it was, I don't know if it was a pastor who said this or if I heard it in a song or whatever. Obviously, I've heard the phrase, um, break my heart for what breaks yours, but I can't remember what really cemented this idea in my head as a kid, but I can remember where I was. I was in the back seat of my parents' car. We were driving through San Antonio somewhere, and I remember what I was thinking about, but um, we were passing by a homeless person, and as a kid, I was just like, it... it it affected me for whatever reason, not that I'd never seen a homeless person before and not that I haven't seen one since, but in that moment, it affected me. And, uh, and I, I remember thinking, um, that I wanted to know what God 
feels, sees, or thinks when he looks at a homeless person. Um, because obviously God, in with infinite knowledge, knows the situation. He knows the person behind the homeless person that we see. You know, he he knows the life choices. He knows the the decisions, the unavoidables, the things that that person couldn't control that led to him or her being there. Um, and I and I I almost had like a jealous moment. Like, man, I wish I knew why he's in this situation. And and I, I remember as a kid praying. Like, God, I want to, at the time, it was very limited in, in what I was praying. The, my heart was in the right place, but what I was praying was break my heart for what breaks yours, as in, obviously, you're sad seeing a homeless person, so I want to feel sadness. I want to know what you're feeling. And now, as an adult, I've grown up and, and I've uh, become a little less naive, good or bad. Um, I've become an adult, and what that is leading me towards now is thinking, I don't think uh, a broken heart necessarily is a bad thing. And it doesn't necessarily mean sadness. I think that, you know, you, you see a, a video of a dog jumping at his owner because the owner hasn't been home for three months, whether it's a veteran or first responder or for whatever reason. Um, you see those videos and people, you know, my heart, people say that it is heartbreaking, even though it's not a bad situation. Um, and so that, that's a little more clarity that I'm seeing into that idea of, okay, God, if, if I'm doing something or somebody else does something, or if I witness something and that's something that brings you joy as the creator or as a, as the, the father, um, I want to feel that I want to know what it's like to not to be God, but to see things through a perfect perspective. And obviously that's something I'll never achieve. Nobody will achieve this side of heaven, but it's something I think to strive towards, which which brings me to to the ultimate point. Um, when when you have a close relationship with somebody, whether it's a spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, best friend, parent, um, my mom and my sister are like extremely close, and there's times where you see them and it's like, oh, they're obviously uh, mother and daughter, or actually some people. Uh, pick them out as maybe being sisters, um, hashtag good genes. But, uh, when you see people who are that close, it's not uncommon to see the same, uh, facial expressions, the same, uh, hand gestures. You, you start acting the same way and, and ultimately you end up responding to things in, in much the same way, or you feel things the same way. Uh, the same things will make the, these two people sad in the in the same way because they're they're much they're very much alike. Um, and so I want to bring that to our relationship with God. As you as we strive, as we push, and we try, and we make all this great effort <laughs> that God is kind of saying, "Hey, you don't need to be trying so hard." But you know, as we're we're doing our best to to get closer to God, to, to see more of him, to experience more of him. Um, I think that, that we have to have the same kind of feeling there. Um, we should desire to feel what he feels because when you have a relationship, you kind of feed off of each other. Now, obviously I don't think God in a relationship with me is thinking, Oh, uh, Bobby had a unique perspective on some political, uh, news article. Like, no, I don't think it's, I think he he's got it. Um, but then as far as me trying to make myself more Christ-like, um, 
I want to feel what he feels and I want to experience things the way he experiences and, and I want to be sad when he's saddened or angry with righteous anger when he's angry or joyful. Um, seeing people excel, I want to be proud and I want to be happy for them the, the way that I, I believe that God the Father would be. Uh, that he, he delights when his children are happy. Um, so I, I want to experience those things. And the, the thing that I saw this morning, uh, and I'll wrap this up, I promise, <laughs> was a Bible verse, John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. And that verse spoke to me this morning because I'm used to seeing the word sheep in a derogatory way, especially in, in today's over-politicized culture. Uh, you, you see the term sheeple, these people who just follow um, some political ideology and whatever that political ideology says or that politician says or whoever that politician decides to hate at any particular moment, well, then that's their marching orders and they go. Um, and so we see the term sheep in today's world is a very derogatory term, uh, rightfully so. Even the Bible expresses how dumb sheep are, and in the Bible we are referred to as sheep. And you know you can get insulted by that, or you can be like, well, I, yeah, I guess I guess that kind of works, right? We do some stupid stuff, but there's hope there, in that with every sheep, there's hopefully, or there really there is, um, there is a shepherd. And it's just the quality of shepherd that we choose. You know, uh, a sheep put out in pasture somewhere doesn't have a choice on what who they decide their shepherd is. They're just, okay, that's the shepherd. That's the dude carrying the stick or whatever. Um, but we as humans have been given free will. And so, you know, the term sheep can be derogatory or in, in the biblical sense, I think it is more hopeful because if you're a sheep, to the good shepherd, you got nothing to worry about. He's got it taken care of. Um, we can trust in, in in that the things that we're going through in life are we're, we're going through them for a reason. You know, God created us in His image, and and the word image, people think, okay, we look like God. Um, but I think that really what it is more is the soul. That's the the depth of us. The feelings, the emotions, uh, those come from him. Jesus was angry. Jesus wept. It's the motivations behind the emotions. It's the what causes that passion that can either lead us in the correct direction or can trip us up and uh, we, we, we falter because of those emotions. It's, it's what's driving us. Um, so God feels, God experiences passion. So we can trust that, one, he knows what he's doing, but two, we can trust that any trial by fire that we experience is ultimately um, developmental for us as Christians and as people in general. And, and, and back to the metaphor of the sheep, just because God doesn't fear the wolves, because he's God, right, doesn't mean that he doesn't protect his sheep from the wolves. And what, what do I mean by that? Um, to follow God's plan in our lives is not to understand the plan, but to trust the planner. So we as these dumb sheep over here who do stupid stuff, if we just stop acting out of our own arrogance, our own pride, our own 
uh, desperation to control situations, ultimately what that leads to is trusting the shepherd, trusting the one who's not only leading us, but protecting us, watching out for us. Um, you don't go spelunking and then spelunking's cave diving for the not so nerds out there. Uh, you don't, you don't go cave diving. And then as soon as you get into some difficult situation, and I don't, I don't mean air quotes spelunking as in going on a guided tour on a concrete lit path in a natural bridge caverns or something. Um, I mean, spelunking, like you're, you're climbing through tunnels and there's maybe water and you're getting dirty and scraped up. Like it's, it's close quarters, claustrophobia type stuff. Um, you don't go spelunking. And then as soon as you're in a difficult situation, you just decide to bail and, and, and find your own way out. Um, you, you stop, you realize, okay, I'm stuck. You cry for a second. Um, probably get some clean shorts or something. Um, and then, and then you listen. Okay. You're like, you acknowledge in your head, I have no idea what the hell I'm doing right now. I'm probably going to get myself killed if I move an inch. So you look to that professional who is with you, who, who's either been here before or been in a situation like this before they know what they're doing. You look to them for instruction and then you literally put your life in their hands because who knows best how to navigate that situation. Um, and so, so that's the point. Seeing the term sheep, it's not a, a reflection on the person itself, that, uh, that person's viewpoints. It's, it's a matter of who is the, their shepherd? Who have they chosen to follow? Is it a politician? Is it a pastor? Is it a parent? Is it a, an idol? Uh, you know, some, uh, celebrity or I don't know, business owner or whatever. It's a movement maker. Uh, who are you following? Who's your shepherd? If it's not the shepherd, if it's not God the Father leading you throughout life, leading you to the correct decisions, guiding you through a stressful situation, whether it's bills, whether it's losing a job, losing a family member or a friend to illness or uh, suicide, God forbid. I mean, the, the suicide epidemic that's going on right now in, in the United States and I'm sure worldwide is just astounding and, and very few people are talking about it. So there's these terrible situations that people are in and ultimately you have to decide, am I going to follow what Donald Trump says because he's Donald Trump? Is that my shepherd? Do I follow Joe Biden or Kamala Harris because you know, they, they should know better because they, they, <laughs> they believe this on the Southern border. Therefore I'm going to trust them to make the right decisions for my life. No, we all know instinctively that if anybody can make the correct decision for, for us in our lives, it's us. But ultimately what that means is we have to follow the one who's got the plan. And if you don't believe there's a plan, if you believe we're all just ants existing on some marble in the universe and we're just some species that eventually is going to get wiped out. I don't know. Uh, I, I can't help you there because I don't know how to think in terms of hopelessness. I, I really don't. I, I always, I, I think of things through, okay, how do we make the best of the situation? Um, but anyways, I think that, that, that comes from having hope and the hope comes from experience and 
especially lately, as I've talked about um, since episode 36, but even just in my past life, looking back and thinking, wow, that was a terrible situation that really could have ended badly, but it didn't. And um, I can either thank myself or I can thank who I, I personally believe orchestrated those events as terrible as they might have been coming out the other side of that storm and being better for it. I have to believe there's a plan and there's a purpose. Um, so have hope. Don't let this world beat you down to the point of believing that it's all for nothing. It's all by accident that you can't control your life. You can't improve your situation. That That's, it's wrong. It's evil. I think hopelessness is a form of evil. It's a, it's a form of spiritual oppression. And that's when you're experiencing, if you, if you are projecting hopelessness, if you're causing hopelessness in others, you are, I believe an active agent of evil. And that's all of us. Um, if we're acting in a, in a way that, that separates another individual from their faith or from their God, um, man, that, that's a dangerous situation to be in. I, I never want to be in that, in that place or have that role in somebody's life. Um, so anyways, <laughs> I got to let y'all go, but uh, have hope, trust in him. You'll be amazed at the level of peace that you experience just everyday life, but also in the scariest, darkest, most chaotic, um, unpredictable, unpredictable situations in life. Having peace in the storm is the most priceless thing that you could ever come across and I've only found one single way to consistently have peace in the storm and that's by putting my hope my trust and my faith in God the Father and believing that he knows how I'm feeling and he wants the best for me as exemplified through uh, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and now I get to see beauty in life I get to see hope in life and I get to feel never alone uh, through the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I will leave you with that. Be kind to each other. Be kind to one another on social media. Uh, when you're when you're making those snarky tweets, making those, those uh, this will show them comments on Facebook or Instagram. Um, try, to, try to push a little hope on people. Try to fill people's cups up a little bit instead of uh, just further emptying people because God knows uh, so many of us are already so empty. So... Uh, anyways, try to be the light, be the change in the world. Uh, if you want to be on the show, if you got a story, if you got a passion that you want to share with the audience, send me an email, info at crossandmusket.com, or uh, just find the page on Instagram at Friday underscore detox. I couldn't get just Friday detox, so it's at Friday underscore detox, D E T O X, and uh, send us a DM. As we put out the new posts, as we put out the, I'm trying to put some videos out there, reaction videos, um, trying not to <laughs> go all in on the editing and things, but just trying to make it digestible. So when you see those come out, share them, put them on your stories. I really believe that there's some positive that can come from just approaching these different ideas politically or socially um, from, a, from a sane, rational point of view. Uh, anyways. Take care, be safe this weekend, have fun, recharge, and uh, we'll see you back here next week. Mm-hmm.